It is Canucks Central, the Monday edition, coming to you live from the Kintech studio on location at Rogers Arena because because it is Canucks game day. It's Satyar Shah with Bick Nazar in for Dan Riccio, who has a day off today. And a lot to dig into here, obviously, the Vancouver Canucks coming off the Friday trade deadline that has come and gone here, Bick. And we have a lot of things to discuss, so if you want to interact with us, as always, Get your thoughts into our Dunbar Lumber text inbox, 650-650. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street and Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. And Bick, you know, let's just dive right into it. There's so much to discuss here today. We have Frank Valley joining us coming up at 4. Uh, uh, sorry, at 4.30. And we have Don Taylor joining us coming up at 5.30. So we have those guys joining us to discuss all things Canucks and to wrap up the trade deadline, the latest on the whole JT Miller saga, too, with Frank Valley That's coming up in a bit. But let's just dive right into it. Philip Hironik is the big player the Canucks acquired leading up to the trade deadline. They were not able to clear more cap space. But as the GM mentioned, Patrick Alvin, he believes he has pathways to clear up that cap space. So it creates a number of different questions about how the Canucks become the playoff team he says they want to be. But as far as Philip Hironik is concerned, I know both of us have had some time to dig into the player over the weekend. Mm-hmm. And what's your prevailing thought of him as a player and the impact he might be able to make? First things first, I just want to see him. Yeah, right. right? More than anything. That's the, the first step, right? He's got to get healthy, arriving in Vancouver today. Philip Ronick will see him hopefully before the end of the season. Yeah. The thing, you know, we've had so many conversations of rebuild and retool on the fly. You know, the thing about this trade is where does it fit on the spectrum of trades that we've seen here in Vancouver, right? For instance, like the Eric Banson trade. That's on the retool on the fly agenda, mm-hmm. but timeline of where the health of the organization was, bit of a foolish move. They, they didn't have a number one defenseman of the future. They didn't have a number one center of the future at the time. There were so many things that were, like, just gaps were empty. Yeah. The OEL trade. So where is that on the timeline of the rebuild, retool on the fly, right? It's all those things have been filled, but was it the age profile of a player that you needed, right? It's a misidentification of that. These trades don't exist in the same vacuum, and so it's somewhere in the middle of that spectrum there of Philip Ronick's the ideal version of what you're trying to do because mm-hmm. he's young, you have all those pieces filled in, and then how can he age with his group? And that's the thing. It's some of the other trades that were done throughout the course of the last nine years, they didn't fit all of the buckets. Mm-hmm. And this one does because there's also an upside to it, right? Say, for instance, another retool on the fly trade, like the Brandon Sutter trade. What was the, like, assuming that worked, okay? I'm going to knock on wood here. Let's say assume that worked. What's the best version of that? Is it even Brandon Sutter as a reliable, like, elite second-line center? Or is he maybe, like, the best version of it, like, 55, 60 points, and you you get a a real PKer? That's pretty much what would have been the ideal upside. He he crests a 50-point mark, and he crushes it on the PK in a matchup role. That's Brandon Sutter working at 100%, right? right? Like, that's the best version of that trade. And it never happened. Yeah, fraught with peril. Right. But what's the best version? Like, what's the best upside of this trade? He emerges as a number two defenseman. And we're talking about a right-sided guy that can give you enough points at 5-on-5, but anchors a PK. 
and can also play a matchup role if need be. Like that would be, or that would be like the, I guess, the idealistic version of everything he provides. I, I think you're missing one layer. The best, the best version of the upside is all those things that you mentioned. But what if he plays with Quinn Hughes? Because mm. all those things, and then you supercharge that. Like individually, he's a number two D man, and that looks fantastic. And then you throw him with Quinn Hughes because they can play lefty righty. It's no big problem there. Well, and and here's where it gets interesting because when you look at Philip Heronik as a player, it's easy to to think he's a certain type of player, mm-hmm. but he's also not what you may think he is. And I don't mean this in a negative way. Like, is he bad at any one thing? No. What does he truly excel at? I would say passing the puck, moving the puck. And I'd probably say his overall hockey sense as a defender, mm-hmm. which I think is something that's been lacking. And just his sense. Well, the of first couple of years, play, yeah. The first couple of years, it looked really dark for Philip Ronick in the defensive zone. It did. It's really progressed. It really has, and you see it just not only defensively when when he's playing five on five, but on the PK. Like this year, he's been one of the better penalty killers defensively in the National Hockey League. And it's not just about the metrics. You watch some of the PKs. One thing he does, he's very cerebral, and he, he's very good at making being aware of what's happening around him. And on the PK, that's the most important aspect of you being able to read what the offense is going to be able to do, but you being aware enough of putting yourself in the right spot and taking away the right things. And that's one thing you do see from him on the PK. And the Canucks' biggest issue, of course, outside of some defensive issues, has been the PK. So I think him being an ace in that regard will be massive. But in terms of how he plays, as much as initially... I would be all for splitting them up, having Hughes and Heronic on different pairs, because you can perhaps have each guy carry a pair, mm-hmm. and then you get the right guy for each guy, and I think then you're you're off to the races. But could their skill sets actually complement each other? And I think that's what's intriguing here in terms of the upside, because initially I'm like, I'm not sure I want these guys together, but then you dig into the player, you realize, well, well maybe the best fit is for those guys to be on the same pair. A lot of other things have to work together, right? or just have to work in general, for the Canucks to find more pieces to go and create their own pairing mm-hmm. outside of a world that exists with Hronick and Quinn Hughes. I'm not sure if I want to explore the upside, but the best version of Philip Hronick succeeding is him being good independently of Quinn Hughes and then putting them together. Because that's a tilt-the-ice type pairing, and then throw him out there with Elias Pettersson, which we know Quinn Hughes is going to play often with Elias Pettersson. I know Jamie was tweeting out some stats today about how good those two guys have been together. If you're telling me that there's a version that Quinn Hughes, Philip Ronick, who are both independently excellent, and throw Elias Pettersson up front, you should have one of the most dynamic trios in the league. And we're not even talking about Kuzmenko also being there with Elias Pettersson. So that, to me, is when you're exploring upside of what some of those other trades over the last nine years haven't held, you haven't had what the exciting upside is. Because the upside of OEL was stabilizing the second pairing. And in terms of just being able to control play and creating offense, but nobody ever had illusions he's going to be a shutdown defender or an ace penalty killer. That was never really in the cards for OEL. It was about, can he be good enough in those areas, but then really help in terms of how he carries play and, and drives play. And that just hasn't happened, especially not this season. Uh, for sure. Some funny text coming in here. Uh, I saw some Detroit fans say he hasn't been the same since he got hammered by Ryan Reeves. Andrew Victoria, Ronick is bad at looking at the ice to see Lucic coming in on him. <laughs> Good text coming in, certainly. Yeah, he's been crushed a couple times. I uh, mean, that that massive hit hurt. Yeah, it, 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 I mean, we know that he's got a shoulder injury, and we'll see ultimately how long it's going to keep him out. But I am intrigued by ultimately where he's going to fit, and mm-hmm. until you try it out, it's hard to know, because you can sit here and plan out 
all you want, and then some guys just don't fit, and all of a sudden other fits happen. The thing I would say, though, about if you do end up putting Hughes and Hironic together, I guess they could just tilt the ice so heavily you don't worry about having a shutdown pair necessarily, but you still need to have somebody that you want to match yes. up with, and like defensive zone sure. draws, who do you want to bring out? Do you almost have to thread the needle even more if you put those guys together? Because then you have to find yep. an even higher grade defender for your second pair. So it comes down to me, well, there I'm, are different I'm, pathways. I'm living in a world where Ronick, to what, what you were saying, is he's that number two guy. Like yeah, he, if he, he evolves to be the number two just guy. Just on his own, he's that. And then how do you even get more upside of that and say, hey, you're good on your own, but let's see what it looks like when you guys are together. Well, And I think if you do that, if that's going to be something you actually do, however, I think that may indicate the caliber of defenseman they may be after with the other addition. Right. Hironic is obviously the one that paid the biggest asset value to acquire. You know, a good first-round pick that could end up being a great first-round pick next season, a second-round pick, and the Canucks got a fourth back in return. I don't think they're going to be giving up assets to that degree for the next trade they acquire. So I'm looking at the type of player they're, they're, they'd probably be targeting because one of the reasons Hironic's value was higher is because there's a high level of offensive upside as well. The one thing we didn't even mention about him, he's got a great shot. Mm-hmm. And he can move the puck well in the offensive zone. He's probably going to be on the second power play unit, but off like 5-on-5, five five, especially if him and Quinn Hughes get into the offensive zone. Could you imagine him cheating down or coming back door with a right-handed shot? That could be a really intriguing prospect, 5-on-5, five five, playing alongside Quinn Hughes and him drawing defenders and bodies over to him, and who's going to be able to dig in back door and be able to find some open space. I think a guy like uh, Hironic could really do that offensively. But it's not as expensive to acquire defensive defensemen. Do you look at maybe building a traditional second pairing? Because if you're trying to be a playoff team, Vic, and I think when we're building the rest of this out... Hironic helps out on the PK. If him and Quinn Hughes end up playing together, and even if him and Quinn Hughes don't play together, there's a huge need here for a defensive presence on mm-hmm. the back end. A guy who can really be an ace on the PK and also be able to play those matchup minutes and do so well. What's the cost of acquisition for a player like that in a trade? John Marino went for a third-round pick in Ty Smith. Unique circumstances for right-hand defensemen like him to become available. Had an off year, and obviously it's worked out in New Jersey. But for a defensive defenseman that has some term on his contract, that's essentially the value we're talking about here. Some level of draft pick and a decent prospect. And maybe in a market where there aren't many free agents, those types of players are a bit more expensive. What are we looking at in terms of what Vancouver could be exploring after making the deals they did at the deadline in the assets they now have compared to what they had before the season began? It's tougher because you're already starting to liquidate some assets, obviously, right? Having used the first-round pick in the Islanders uh, trade to, to go get Philip Ronick. The thing that we talk about of why now, like why do they do the trade now? Because do opportunities open up? You said unique circumstances? Yes. This time they created a unique circumstance. They, they engineered it. Say, hey, what does it cost to actually go get this guy right now? And Detroit quotes a price, and there you go. You get your guy. That's a unique circumstance to go be a buyer at the deadline. This is a scenario where you, you have, probably have to wait till the summer to see if unique circumstances external of you get created to do other other cap pressures mm-hmm. for teams around the league. That's where I get a bit uh, hazy, where it's like, how many of these opportunities do they actually open up? And if they open up, is there a a, a cost of acquisition that decreases from from what the Canucks just paid. Well, and that's the, you know, 
there was a big elephant in the room here. We're going to get to it. I'm, I'm sure people are listening saying, with what cap space? Yes. We're going to get to that in a second. Don't yeah. worry. That's that's certainly there. There's an elephant in the room. I totally understand. And, and we'll get to that coming up coming up in just one moment. But just, just to kind of... Just compare some of the assets the Canucks have now compared to what they had before. Like, they're plus Aturatu, mm-hmm. and they add Josh Bloom, who's a bit of a prospect, but whatever. But it gives you two guys who you did not have before. And the Canucks opened up some contract slots where they could pursue a number of free agents, and we know they're going to be active in that and pretty very active. So we could be sitting here and talking about a situation where the Canucks are plus what? four, five, maybe six prospects by the end of the season, you know, when I'm including Ratu and Bloom, depending on how many more guys they sign. So that's going to be an influx of assets to your organization. What does that do to the players, prospects who were here before these guys got here? I know Hoaglander's been developing, but he's a guy, obviously, these guys didn't draft. Jack Rathbone hasn't been able to fit in. And depending on OEL situation, what pathway does he have on this blue line? All of a sudden, however, you add some more guys to the fold, maybe you're not as reluctant to move one of those players in a deal that, that can find you the player you want, and you have an extra third, and you have two extra fourth-round picks this year. Not to say you want to flip all of these things, but you have some assets prospect-wise and some you know, mid-round draft picks to take advantage of some of those situations. And I know fans are saying, hold on to your draft picks, but we also have to operate in a world and try to figure out what this organization is going to try to do, and it's not going to be the horrid-ass picks to just make picks. They're going to probably look to flip a couple of these. So they have those things there. The question is, how do you clear up the cap space? And could you even enhance what you have to go out and acquire a better player if you actually get a return on some of these players you're looking to move out? Well, that's the thing, right? How many honest returns are we expecting? By honest, I mean equal value for a Connor Garland or a Brock Besser. Are you expecting? I'd say the up, I think the high end, and we have to be realistic, is probably a second-round pick. In value. In value. Now, prospect, actual draft capital, that's what you're looking at, I think, on the high end. I think in an ideal world, if you're just making a hockey trade, right? In an ideal world, I think the upside here is you try to move out one of the wingers and you find a cheaper D-man. $3 million, $4 million, somewhere in that range. However you have to get to that final equation... You do the math and say, hey, do we need to add something? Whatever it is. I think that's the the final conclusion. If they move it out for a pick, does that pick ultimately get flipped around to go find that D-man in that price mm-hmm. range? I, I think that's where we're going to end up. But I don't know if it's going to be as smooth as Brock Besser goes out and a D-man comes in. It might be, as you said, go get a second-round value, maybe third-round value, and then find the other way. Uh, to bring that type of player in. Well, it's and no, the other thing I was gonna say, if you just want to expedite it all, you could also say, does the Jack Rathbone go with Brock Besser? Does the Nils Hoglander go with Brock Besser and find you that type of player you're looking for? Well, and could you in that turn end up making a deal with one team, or even a three-way deal or whatever, where you end up getting that defenseman you're looking for, and the money shifts around? And we have to also keep in mind what's what's this organization's uh, mo. It has been to make one move that leads to another move. 
Like they they mm-hmm. sequence these things out, and we've gone through this before. But look at the Hamannick trade. I mean, they got a third round pick and made another third round pick expendable, and they went out and got Travis Dermott pretty much immediately, right? And then we obviously know what they did with Dickinson to set up the Bear trade, and then obviously the Bohorvat trade to set up the Heronic trade. It was clear they were after right hand defensemen, and they felt like if they could get some assets, they could, they could go out and get that guy. And clearly, that's what they ended up doing. So I think it it comes down to identifying that sequence of events, and I think one of the reasons they didn't make moves at the deadline to just get rid of players and just get the picks for itself without clarifying what's next. It was like, we'd rather hold on to the player and see where their asset value's at and then figure that out in the offseason as opposed to just taking the asset in hand. Now, personally, I look at it as if you can get the assets, get them, and then figure it out a bit later on because at least you get them in your hand now and not worry about it and, and give yourself some flexibility. But it's clear they like to set their moves up. And until they have the next move figured out via trade, they haven't really pulled the trigger on it. We'll see if that changes this offseason. The change could be, though... We're talking about getting yourself to free agency. Mm-hmm. Do they have guys in mind in free agency that if they just clear money for the sake of clearing it, they can go and pursue? Because making trades, you want to go and do that for sure. But the easier pathway might just be to sign a free agent if you can do that and not give up the assets. Does it ride with rhyme with uh, Shmladislav uh, Van Rakov? <laughs> I think so. I think so. I mean, and we joked about this even a few sh- jokes shows I ago, ain't right? No, but we we were joking about Gavrikov, you know, Milstein agent, played with Kuzmenko, and lefty, big defenseman, more defensive guy, can be physical, good on the PK, fits the profile of what the Canucks need on the left side. Could he be an easy free agent type of signing? And, and for what we were just talking about, could you just as easily move the the a winger just for draft picks and sign a free agent, right? Like that's the exactly. same calculation. Yeah, you can do that, and also you that way you save your pick. And could you get the pick back and then try to get, say, a 2024 pick instead? Sure. If you don't want to make the selection and you want to have the asset value for it, for instance, if you want to make another trade. They probably want to make a selection, though. This year, probably want a second for this year. I mean, I think they'd love Start to have putting a, in some prospects into this. I think they'd probably love to get a second round pick this year and use it. The question is, can you resist the urge of moving that pick if there's a player available for you? But I think those are the, the pathways here. And, and Dolly Wall today mentioned, obviously, that Gavrikov's name is somebody the Canucks may consider. And I, I know it was a pretty funny bit about Bar, Barbanov. I think he meant Barbashev. The thing I would say, though, looking at free agency, and we've, in terms of making this seem a playoff team, right? Clearly, the back end is the biggest thing you have to figure out. And we just spoke about what you have to do to shift money around and the assets you have to play with and to go out and get players, and perhaps even in free agency with a player like Gavrikov. The question I have, though, for the other big issue this team has to solve is the third line center spot. Given that you now have Niels Oman, and I'm not saying Oman's going to be a long term third line center, but he's a 22 year old, came to the NHL this season, shown some progress. Do you want to buy it a year to see, hey, is it, can he be more than a fourth-line center? And you also traded for Aturatu. You have two guys who could project to be third-line centers for your team potentially in, in a year or two. Are you better off to try to either go and get a legit young center who can play in that spot, who can do the things you want and give the assets to, to acquire that? Or do you try to piece it together with a guy in free agency on a one- or two-year deal and buy those guys some time to see if they can become that player internally? Ideally, do the theory of what they meant to do with the Jay Beagle of, hey, we just need some bodies to delay the process of some prospects, yeah. but without paying the premium. That's the goal, right? Like, the, the idea of bringing in a veteran made sense. They just paid too much and for too long. Yes. Are there some names that you're looking at that uh, strike you as, 
hey, this is a guy that could fit that mold. So Barbashev's name came up. Now, Barbashev, obviously, he, he's a lefty. He can play center. I'd say he's better on the wing than center. Doesn't win a lot of face-offs. And doesn't win a lot of face-offs, and he's not a penalty killer. Mm-hmm. And the Canucks kind of need a center who can kill penalties and win face-offs on the PK. And ideally a right-hander. And I'm not saying Barbashev may not fit on this team, because, hey, if this team actually, let, let's say they actually move out two or three wingers. You know, we're talking about Garland, Besser, and Pavilliers on the final year of his deal next year. If they actually move two or three of those guys, they have room. Then it makes sense for me, perhaps, to go and pursue a Barbashev. So he could make sense, and he's a versatile player. But I don't think he's a guy you should be targeting to be your third-line centerman because he doesn't do the things this organization needs. I think there actually are some cheaper options you can look at that can get you through for a year. Noel Achari is a player. He's a right-handed centerman. He wins a lot of face-offs. He's solid on the PK. Gives you a little bit of offense as well. Not a great I always liked him, and I never understand why the demand for Noel Achari is never higher than we than it appears to be uh, come free agency day. And you're talking about guys that signed under $2 million. Yeah. Even, even a guy like Teddy Bluger, he's a lefty, he's not a righty center, but he wins draws, he's good on the PK, he's Obviously good defensively. with this with organization. This, with this organization. Or this group. And then that's not even mentioned guys like Lars Eller, who also does those things, wins draws, and good on the PK. A bit mm-hmm. older, obviously, but... And even on the on the other side, Luke Lendenning, Nick Bukestad, David Kampf is another player... There was about six or seven of these types of guys who actually fit the profile that probably cost under two million that'll be available this offseason. And, and just to strike the like the to show how the, the demand for these players is, how high it is, or how high it should be. This season, how many right handed centers sat do you think have won fifty percent of the short handed face offs? And they've had to have taken at least twenty. Not one twenty, just taken twenty this year. How many do you think there are? Across the league. 20? 16. 16. 16 right-handed centers above or at or above 50% this year. There aren't many, man. There are not many. And this is a situational role that this organization does need to solve at some point. And Nolachari, to me, is a fantastic name at a cheap cost. Functional player uh, who's been... uh, Productive as well. Like he's he's had a twenty goal season. I don't know if that's what you're you're banking on from Nolachari, but he's done that. So he's not a deficit player that just hey just go out and win a draw. Like he can be useful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it, it always just surprises me when Nolachari is left by the wayside and the team just picks him up and hey they got something and here he is traded this year to Toronto. And don't get me wrong, he's not a long term solution. No, and I mean the, the thing is. If the Canucks want to be a playoff team next year, they need a guy who can fulfill that role as a third-line center. They need improvements on the back end. They don't have all the assets to go and get a number two defenseman, get a number four defenseman, and get a legitimate high-end young third-line slash second-line centerman. The only way you can hit on that is if you get the lottery luck. That's where the I think that's why you leave the forward up. But that's why I don't think right. it makes sense for this organization to, to push too forward on on the forward prospect because whoever you draft might be the center who steps in in a year as well, right? Depending on where it's at. So I don't see I don't see the priority in trying to address a third line center spot, but giving up big assets for it. And if you look at the free agent market, there are a bunch of guys that could fit in as potential fits, you're not giving too much up, up, right? And I know people texted in, and somebody texted in, you know, uh, they were talking about Barabanov. Same thing, even Barabanov. You're talking about a guy who's a winger, not a centerman, and they're they're fine. Like, they're guys that could fit in, and and I like them as their profiles, but to me, you're getting those guys to play wing, not to play center and be your PKers. And I think that's the biggest thing there. 
uh, Tones texting in, wasn't that supposed to be Lazar? Yeah, for sure, but you know what? Like, Curtis Lazar never showed that he could win face-offs effectively more than a 44 46% level, Yeah. let alone shorthanded. So the, the, the list of guys that can actually do it is very, very small. Uh, this one, what will it take to get Cole Sillinger or Nick R Roy? Uh, Keith the water guy, a lot. Cole a Sillinger, lot. obviously... High drafted player. You're talking. These teams probably want first round picks and, for guys and like that. Nick Roy just started a five year, three million dollar deal, so it's yeah. kind of a value price for Vegas. Now Vegas could be in a situation they don't have a lot of cap space. Now that also depends on the health of Mark Stone and long term mm -hmm. what happens with him. They could also just make the easy moves and move a Mark Mar Alec Martinez, who's in the last year of his deal. But they're a team that might have to explore doing things like that. And maybe they'll be squeezed a bit, but uh, but I'd assume they'd want a first round pick. The Canucks have traded a first. Are they? Do they have the appetite to trade another one? Keep winning games, and it becomes like eleventh overall. Yeah. Well, yeah, and uh, sorry to scare everyone for a second. <laughs> no. uh, Rusty Shackelford <laughs> says, "If you're signing free agents, you'll need players on ELCs, and and that's exactly it. I mean, that's what we're talking about up front. You can't be spending a ton of assets on a center, a two defensemen. You're gonna have to have guys come in on cheap deals. And the other part about this is making sure that you develop one of these players, whether it's Kraftsov, you know." whether it's put Coles in next season, and mm -hmm. we'll see what happens with Hoaglander. One or two of these guys are going to have to emerge as well on a cheap contract and give you a little bit of something. It, it's a lot that has to happen, but I think it's interesting just kind of going through the pathways to get there and how much work the Canucks have in order to become that playoff team next season. A lot of reaction on text inbox, 650-650. We'll try to hit more of that as the show goes on here. It is Satyar Shaw with Bick Nazar. We have Frank Valley joining us next right here on the home of your Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Talking all Canucks all the time. It's Canucks Talk with Jamie Dodd and Thomas Drance. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. In on Canuck Central, Satyar Shaw with Bikazar coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. Keep your thoughts coming into our text inbox, 650-650. A lot of reaction to our conversation in, in the first opening segment of the show, talking about how the Canucks might become a playoff team. Philip Heronik's fit with the Vancouver Canucks and what the Canucks have to do this offseason to take that next step as an organization. And uh, there are a lot of questions here. This one from Tones, Bick. On the draft front, who is potentially available in the 6-9 to nine range that is a right-handed centerman? In Yeah, the, the Ryan Leonard's name. I think you like him probably a bit more than I do. Uh, yeah, um, and we'll and see again, if he can play center, wing, yeah, potentially can play is, center. This is very preliminary yes. still. Uh, some names that could rise up, like a Nate Danielson. Very little I've watched of him. Kind of an exciting player. Uh, you know, Oliver Moore is a guy that we both really like, mm -hmm. but he's a left-handed shot. Uh, and then Will Smith's the other one, who's a bit more of a silkier player, maybe not the traditional grinded-out style guy. Um, 
he's another right-handed center that's supposed to go in that range. Well, we, like we can talk about these guys more later. But. Yeah, we'll discuss them a bit more later. But those are some some players like you mentioned. You know, even a guy like Braden Yeager. I'm not sure he's a yeah. you know, he's a center or he's the type of center you're looking for, but could potentially depending on how you project them. But if the Canucks get the luck you need and get a little bit higher, then maybe just maybe they find the ideal player that fits in for them. All right, uh, we are going to be uh, hooking up with our friend Frank Valley coming up in just a moment as soon as he joins us here to break down what happened at the NHL trade deadline and where things are at with JT Miller. And, you know, Bick, the JT Miller discussions just took off uh, like wildfire the week leading up to the trade deadline. I remember chatting with Frank about this, you know, a couple of weeks ago, even before that, about, you know, could we hear JT Miller's name come up? And not only did it come up, it, it created a... Quite, quite a, yeah, quite an S-storm and, and quite a hellstorm here locally and across the league. So to talk about that and more, let's welcome in our good friend Frank Valley from Daily Faceoff into the conversation. And Frank, first of all, now that the deadline is over and you had a weekend, have you decompressed yet? Yeah, or, what did you get up to like, this weekend, you know, Frank? Yeah, did you do something other than call people? Uh, yeah, I actually really tried hard to put my phone down over the weekend. And, um, you know, I, I actually went to go... I went to get an IV bag on Saturday. Just a nice little recovery, get some vitamins. Oh, you never okay. feel quite as good as when you you get a bag or two in you. <laughs> and uh, and I, it's not like I went. Uh, I, I didn't. I didn't go hard Friday night. Like I quite literally finished my show and and went to bed. And I was just like, these last six to eight weeks have been such a grind. Um, I was just excited to get some sleep. That and the oxygen bar is like always go tos. <laughs> yeah. I, and by the way, so like I show up for work on Monday and Dan doesn't. So what's up with that? Yeah, I know, right? Uh, reach needed the day, and, and hopefully he'll be back here uh, pretty soon. But hey, everyone, everyone needs a bit of decompressing after the NHL yeah. trade deadline, right? But uh, you know, as far as the whole JT stuff, let's just start there because I know a lot of fans are just kind of wondering what happened. And you know, I was just mentioning off the top before we brought you in, we we discussed this a couple weeks ago about the possibility his name was going to come up, and not only did it come up, it it kind of took off even more than any of us had envisioned. What did you make of how the JT Miller thing got to where it was and where we're at today? Well, first off, I just, I can't help, but as we've gotten to the other side of this, just think about how incredibly awkward this must feel for JT Miller. Like you signed this seven year, $56 million contract last summer. And you're thinking, okay, this is the place I'm going to be. My family's here you know, we're, we're sort of rooted in this community. Now we've got this contract to prove it and we're in for the long haul we've committed. And it's amazing that sort of, you know, not that many months later, this is where things stand that it almost kind of feels like a foregone conclusion that he's going to be moved this summer. And I think that's, it's not an appropriate way to frame it, but the Canucks were like ready, willing, and I believe eager to move him at this deadline. And, Really where this deal fell apart, it, it's and, – and I say deal, I put that in air quotes. There, there were some deep conversations with the Pittsburgh Penguins. I think that's the best way to put it. I think everyone recognizes now that that is fact. And there was some hemming and hauling, I think, on both sides' parts of, well, is it two first-round picks or is it a first-round pick and a prospect – is it two first round picks and a prospect? Uh, that's sort of, you know, the, the circles that they were going around and around in. And then 
I think ultimately the reason this deal didn't get done was on Pittsburgh's end. It wasn't when when Patrick Alvine says I I didn't never got an offer. I think that's accurate. It's like semantics, but it's accurate in that the Pittsburgh Penguins never actually made a bona fide offer for them to say yes to is the point. But they went as far enough down the track to where there were other pieces involved to try and move them and third-party teams involved that they just it was a, a lot to try and get done before Friday. And I think what was in the back of everyone's mind in Pittsburgh was, yeah, JT Miller from here, all those things. But really, they were thinking, is there a better way to spend $56 million? That's what they came back to. So will that question remain come the summer? And what gets the train back on the tracks if they're to restart conversations? Well, I, I don't have any sense that Pittsburgh will revisit it. I, I think it's too early to tell because I also don't know how their season is going to unfold. But will these talks continue again in the summer for the Vancouver Canucks? Like, I'd be shocked if they don't. I mean, consider where this team is at. Consider what they're trying to accomplish. Consider all of the goals that they put down on paper. Oh, and that's the other part of it, too, is the Canucks weren't willing to do this on their end and just trade JT Miller blindly without knowing that they had a proper center in place that sort of fit their age scheme better to do what they wanted to accomplish. So that's the other part of it too. Like there that, that added another layer to it that if they found that player and that's why I had warned sort of heading into the, to Friday's deadline was if you see the Canucks trade for another center, that's the, that's the sort of, uh, you know, smoke that, that you needed in order to suggest that JT Miller was going to be on his way out of town. And obviously that never materialized, but now what that's the kind of goes back to the awkwardness that I was talking about heading in with, with Miller. Like how do you kind of put all this back together? How do you put the genie back in the bottle? Not just to finish this season. He's a big boy and there's lots of players who are in more awkward situations, including maybe a James Van Riemsdyk in Philly, for instance. But mm-hmm. none of them are embarking on a brand new big money contract with their team where it's kind of abundantly clear we don't want this player to gain control of the no trade clause. We'd probably prefer to move him first. I, th- I think one thing this also does outline, and there's a lot of discussions about the contract JT signed and you know how people feel about that and, and whether that contract can get moved or not. Based on the fact that, obviously, the Pittsburgh discussions, you know, they went pretty deep there, but the fact that other teams also called, what does that kind of say about JT's potential value this offseason and how teams may get into it as well? Because there isn't a lot of free agents available either this summer. Yeah, Sad, I think that's actually a really good question and, and sort of one that maybe we hadn't properly analyzed, at least on my end, prior to these discussions unfolding and that... I think I kind of flippantly said, you know, at some point this season as it was going off the rails that, you know, it would be difficult or hard to trade JT Miller. I think at the price the Canucks were asking for, it probably is because it's it's not just the equation of will you sign, you know, would you sign JT Miller at this ticket if he were a free agent? Because that's not what the equation is. The equation is, would you give up these assets and sign JT Miller to this ticket if he were a free agent? And that's that's the different part of the calculus that teams are going to have to answer. But I think the answer for right now is he's still 
you know, a point per game player in that neighborhood, still an impact guy in this league and still entering a summer in which there's not very many impact players available. It's a thin free agent class that the contract for where the Canucks are positioned seems entirely unreasonable at this exact juncture. But for another team that's in a different environment, a different scenario, a different window to win, that it's really not all that out of whack, provided that they either have the cap space or can create the cap space to add someone like him to their team. Just stepping out of the Canucks perspective for just a second here, Frank, that conversation in general about the free agent class this summer and what trades might ignite because of it, it in your conversations, like how much fear is there of finding talent in the free agent class, and will that spark maybe a trading season come this summer? I hope. I mean, <laughs> look, yeah. I'm not dying to do my next trade targets board yet. Like, I think I can give it a few weeks, Bic. We can I find an IV like, bag for you, too, to uh, get you charged <laughs> up for it. Look, here's what I'll say. Like, I have the IV bag placed around the corner from my house, and I was like, you know what? I'll try it out. I know it sounds weird. My wife was like, you are such a drama queen that you needed to go get an IV bag. I was like, you you never feel quite as good when you get one. So right. it's, it's pretty awesome, uh, and I highly recommend but, um, yeah, I mean, I'm not dying to do a trade targets board, but I'm hoping that it's pretty active on that front, not just for, like, content and buzz, but also because I do think this is going to be a quiet free agent class, and I do think part of the cap and the flat cap environment or frozen cap environment, what it's done is it's created an avenue where teams are so deathly afraid of losing really good players that – they essentially lock them up long-term and way before they ever get to market because mm-hmm. there's the, there's been this dichotomy created on the salary cap where I think certain teams like Vegas and others illustrate it really well where you have your like eight, nine, ten million dollar players. You see so very few guys that are in that five to four million dollar range that it kind of drops off right away to like three, two, and one. And it's created this system of haves and have nots that the haves are always getting taken care of. And the guys that are in the middle are sort of always up for grabs. Well, and it was interesting listening to uh, Canucks GM Patrick Alvin, and we had him on our show for an interview after he met with the media as well on Friday. And he was very confident in his ability to move money this offseason, saying based on the discussions we've had, we feel like there are players we can move. And I guess... We've heard that before, and then we've seen players not get moved, but could that speak to what we just discussed about what the market could look like and some indications from teams about what they might be looking to explore this offseason in terms of acquiring players? Yeah, and and Sat, you were bang on with the Penguins being not just the only team that called, and I can tell you this, I don't know exactly who called and didn't call, but I can tell you from my conversations with other teams, there were enough conversations in pro scouting meetings and front offices with intrigue about JT Miller that I think it will percolate more this summer. And, you know, it's, it's such an interesting spot for the Canucks to be in too, because I think it also says a lot about their, their organization and the way that they've gone about business. If they do ultimately end up moving on from this player, because the contract hasn't even kicked in, like how often do you see that? And I think that ends up being a black mark on the team of Not only did we not get this right, but this is how we're handling this situation. And I think there's something to be said for that. 
and there's nowhere to run. There's no one else to blame. It's not like you can say this was a holdover from the previous regime and, and they did this and we're just mopping up the mess. This is, is purely on the Canucks and this current, this current group that's in place. Well, hang on, Frank. If, if, if we're talking about like the quarter price you just say where it's like two first-round picks and a prospect. They're not going to get that. No, no, right, but I'm just saying, like, if, if that's what happens here, right, there's a difference between admitting a mistake and getting the valuation of a player, right? I, I, there is, but that's not what's going to – that's what I don't – I don't believe that's going to occur. I think there's going to be a market correction and adjustment, much in the same way that the reason why Eric Carlson didn't move from the San Jose Sharks wasn't because they weren't willing to eat money. It's because the price that they were asking in return – was unreasonable even for a player having a 100-point season. Well, and and we know that no front office was more maligned than the Canucks front office at the trade deadline because of how they approach things and people wondering what the plan truly is here. But in terms of actual organizational pressure, I don't think uh, Patrick Alvin's job was on the line this trade deadline. But we saw some teams really get aggressive at the trade deadline and, and make a number well, of... Can, wait a second. Dish. Can we talk about, before we move on, can we like talk about that plan? Okay, yeah, because for sure. I, I don't I think it's unfair some of the things like and 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 I know that someone listening to this is gonna say, Well, you were just critical of the Miller contract. Why are you gonna say this part? I think it's un uh, and this is not me sucking and blowing at the same time. What I'm saying is <laughs> you're in a spot where we don't first off, the Canucks since they made the Rick Tockett change and since the calendar turned to twenty twenty three They've been very consistent in their message. Mm -hmm. And they've said it. The fan base clearly doesn't agree with the approach that they're taking. But they've told you what they're doing. And fans seem to be really confused about what's taken place since. They said, we're going out to acquire players that are 25 and under. And we are retooling this team. That's what they're doing with Philip Ronick. Well, so they went out and got one of those players, and everyone's confused about it. Why is that? Well, I think the biggest confusion is when the trade was made for Bo Horvat, they got the first-round pick back in Atu Ratu, and, and they thought maybe, hey, they're going to hold on to these picks. And I think it was honestly just trading the first-round pick they got for Bo. I think that's what th threw everybody off, and the organization saying they don't want to trade first-round picks. And it's semantics, right? Because you can just say, well, they didn't trade their first-round pick. They flipped an asset they got back for Horvat to get the player they were looking for. But I think that's what threw everybody off because there was a lot of excitement locally, uh, Frank, yeah, about Yeah, because it looked like, hey, this team is finally mm. going towards the future direction that everyone's wanted right and I but think that's much in the same anything. way right now sat i would say it's unfair to grade this group right now with where they're at because we have an incomplete picture that the team we'll see on the ice in the fall is going to look vastly different i think than the one that we see right now and until you see that product in the fall you're, you're it's like you're you're in between you're in you're in the in-between stage of no one really wants to look at this product as it is right now because it's ugly. But let's see what it looks like before we see before we really start to hand out grades. Is what I would say. Well, and I'd say that it is very incomplete because it's it's just very clear there is stuff that they want to do, and I think there is stuff that's going to happen, right? And and ultimately we'll see what they do this off season and whether they use buyouts or they make trades, move guys out. But who would you say, based on the trade deadline, moving off the Canucks a bit here before before we let you go, who would you say? 
whose job is the most on the line? Like, I know Ron Hextall took a lot of heat. We know Chuck Fletcher's under a lot of pressure. Kyle Duba spent a lot of assets. We know the Rangers were also aggressive. Is there somebody who's very much on the line for the amount of work they did this or didn't do at the trade deadline? Yeah, I mean, I would say that there's definite heat in Philadelphia with Chuck Fletcher. I would say there's probably some heat in Calgary with Brad Tree Living and him being in the final year of his deal. I think there's less so at least on Kyle Dubas specifically in Toronto, because I think the fact of the matter is whether he's there or not, he's getting a job in five seconds. So how much heat is he really feeling? No one wants to lose and no one wants to get fired, but I don't, I don't know that he's waking up at every moment in a panic induced, you know, trance thinking, Hey, I, I might lose my job here. So I, I've never gotten the sense that that's the case. I think there's some pressure and clearly some friction between Mike Sullivan and Ron Hextall in Pittsburgh. I, you know, he's also still relatively early on in his tenure and still dealing with a new ownership group in Fenway Sports Group that is still trying to figure out what exactly they're doing on the hockey side. And and no one has really beaten the drum on this part of it. But you know, I, I think there's real pressure on Long Island with, with Lou Lamorello. Like this is a team that expected more and has now doubled down, if not tripled down on this core, especially after the Horvat trade and extension, that well, what happens if they don't make the playoffs? You know, the question has been, has Lou Lamorello lost his fastball? At, at the, as the NHL's first GM to, to be in the chair in his 80s, I, I don't think the answer to that is yes, but I at least think it's fair to ask the question. Just one, one final thing kind of on the Canucks, but in general the league uh, mm-hmm. on a whole coming this summer. Obviously, we're outside of JT Miller, there's still Brock Besser and Connor Garland. What do you feel like the winger market is going to be like, and, and what teams are you looking at, say, that could be targeting more goal scoring from the wings? I got to be abundantly honest with you. I have not thought that far ahead to what the winger market looks like. I, I, I described myself in the last few weeks as a 290-pound man going downhill on a scooter with one wheel just trying to make it to the finish line. And so I got there. Thank you. Uh, I did cross the finish line somehow against the odds, and I, I haven't thought that far ahead, but I would think that some of the teams that were looking for scoring help on the wing at the deadline that didn't really solve it in a meaningful way, and I would include Calgary in that group. Mm-hmm. I would include, um, in some ways, the Winnipeg Jets, even though Nino Niederreiter has a little bit of term. I think the Buffalo Sabres have a pretty big story to write this summer, um, potentially on the right side of, of their offense. Uh, depending on how some of these young players come along. And then I think the big wild card in all of this is like what happens with some expensive contracts pick of guys that teams may not really be able to either re-sign or, or, you know, need to engage in some, you know, potentially intriguing options or conversations. Someone like uh, William Nylander entering the final year of his deal at just under 7 million bucks. If you can't afford to re-sign him, Obviously, there's surplus value in that deal to bring him back for one more year and let him walk. But do you do that or do you capitalize while you can this summer and potentially make a move? So that would be another one that might open up a hole for another winger addition somewhere else. So that's sort of how the general thought of how I view the winger market shaping up in its infancy stages. 
Uh, Frank, great stuff as always. Uh, good in-depth coverage on the Canucks and getting to the bottom of the JT stuff. And I guess we're not to the bottom of it because there's more to come this offseason. So way more. Pe- way, so I know people are saying, can you stop the JT thing? It's like, well, until it gets settled, I guess we're not going to stop. So we'll see what happens. But appreciate your time, man. And uh, and don't get don't get too uh, addicted to the IV bags next door. Yeah, no. I mean, look, we're, we'll be good. I just just stay hydrated. That's all. That's my exactly. only suggestion. Bick stay fresh. And uh, Sat, it was fun. And tell Dan I missed him. Yeah, what we will do. Thanks so much, man. Uh, that's our good friend Frank Cervalli from Daily Faceoff uh, checking in. Uh, and yeah, Dan Riccio away today. Bick Nazar fill, filling in. And uh, it was. It Does that pr- make me the PDG of the Connect Central? Ooh, PDG. That was burned him. <laughs> No, I, I think you. I, I don't. I think you fit the age profile better than PDG, <laughs> PDG does, and overall upside as well. I'd say. Oh man, I'd say it's a it's a better one. Um, all right, that was some good stuff on JT Miller. We'll talk more about JT on the other side. Not so much about the rumors and stuff because I know people are saying like enough with the rumors. Well, well, but obviously JT could win the con Smythe, and we're gonna be like, well, what do you what, think what happens? Do you think? This yeah, exactly. What what happens? JT, congratulations <laughs> on winning the cup. What do you think about the rumors? Yeah, but I do think one thing that that has the way the the narrative around JT's gone has been. I think it's become a bit of a caricature. He's become a bit of a caricature in terms of how people view him versus what he truly is. Like his perception is a caricature of his actual reality. And I think that's also kind of shaded what people think of him as a player and, and how bad, quote unquote, the contract is. And based on everything Frank told us, what does that tell you about JT as a player, his value? And what's the fit looking like here? We'll talk more about JT Miller, the player, and if he does stay in Vancouver long term and, and how that's going to look like and the value he has around the league. And we'll talk about Quinn Hughes set an NHL record for the fastest defenseman in NHL history to hit 200 assists, and he did it the other night against the Toronto Maple Leafs. We'll discuss that and more as Canucks Central rolls on on the home of your Canucks, Sportsnet 650.